have a Bible with you, um, you can use the Pew Bible in front of you. We're going to be on page 1044 there, but if you do have your Bible with you, open it up to Colossians chapter 3. Um, we are going to continue in our study of Colossians this morning. Um, we're going to hit some um, uh, interesting topics. So as always, if you have questions or anything comes up as we talk through it, feel free to text the um, Q&R line and we'll uh, work through some questions at the end. Um, before we get started though, I'm going to pray over us one more time. Lord God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for your goodness to us and uh, for the power of your word. Um, God, that, that we can uh, read it and it it changes us, that it speaks to us. Um, it is powerful and sharp, and it pierces our soul in ways that other books and, and other ideas just don't. Um, and we know that's not, um, not because it's a magical book, but because it's your spirit working in us to teach us. And I just pray that as we uh, wrestle with a text that is just out of alignment with um, our culture's values, um, that you would shape us, that you would humble us, uh, that you would um, show us our own souls and the darkness that still lives in them, uh, and then um, renew us and conform us to the image of your Son. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So we, we talked last week about the first four verses of Colossians chapter 3. And um, we have been, for two chapters, Paul has been kind of going over and over and over again about how important Christ is. He's, he's the most important person. He's the most important thing. And you should hold on to Christ. And last week we talked about patterning your life after lesser things. The, um, that there's a that the false teachers had this whole um, way of, of of manipulating worldly things in order to have some kind of spiritual experience. And and Paul said, "Don't do that. You are placed in heaven with Christ. He, you are in Christ, and He is in you. So focus your actions and your attitudes on who Jesus is, because." He is your life, and when he appears, you will appear with him in glory. And so this week, we're going to start taking a look at some practical ways that Paul wants to point out that we should do that. And today, he's going to talk about some negative things that we should discard from our lives. And next week, we're going to take a look at some positive things that Paul asks us to put on as Jesus' people. And uh, in order to kind of illustrate the severity of what we're talking about today and kind of the mindset that we have when we're kind of out of whack with um, what the culture kind of puts on us. Uh, I, I found this picture um, right here. This is uh, an alligator farm from the 1950s. They offered alligator rides to small children, which seems unsafe, honestly. I I wasn't around in the 50s. I know a few of you were and you made it, but uh, uh, that just seems like a poor decision. And it reminded me of this N.T. Wright quote. He says, 
he's talking about sin. He says, as, it's as though we've got these potentially wild animals in our back garden that keep on snarling at us and biting at us and nipping us. And the temptation is to say, well, we just need to tame them a bit. We just need to tell them to quiet down or we need to put a leash around their neck or something. But the answer is, no, sorry, they actually need to be killed. That's tough because we actually quite like these animals and they reflect parts of us that seem to be important. And this is the thing that Paul is going to say today. He's going to offer up some ways of doing life and he's going to say, these things need to be killed. And our temptation is to just say, like um, the, the alligator farm, like, well, if we just kind of put a muzzle around it, it'll be fine. We'll just, we'll just uh, we'll live with it. We'll keep it under control. We'll hide it in the back. But the reality is, is sin will kill us. Jesus invites us into this new life. And this life is totally different than our old one. In, in verse 3 of Colossians chapter 3, remember he says, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So for Paul, what does that look like? And so today I want to give you four C words because that's just a classic preacher thing. Community, cooperation, chastity, and charity. Community, cooperation, chastity, and charity. And and what we're going to do, we're going to start at the end of the passage because I think it's really important if we just dive in at, at verse 5, we can get things out of alignment. We're going to start at the back and work our way to the front. So the first thing we want to be aware of is this idea of community. In verse 11, Paul says, In Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. So why do I think we should start with this verse where Paul ends this morning? The reason is, oftentimes when I read the New Testament, when I read Paul's letters, I feel like he's talking to me. He says, he says you a lot. And in English, you singular and you plural are the same. And so we read you and, and we think it's just, Paul's just speaking right to me and my situation and my trials and my joys. But that's not what Paul is talking about. We talked about it at the beginning of the letter. He's writing a letter to a church. And so when we look at these uh, vices that we are supposed to put away and put to death, Paul's not giving us just an individual to-do list. He is sharing a set of characteristics that will define the community of God's people. And this is important because we're not talking about private religious experiences. Uh, David Powell says, unlike the false teachers who seem to have focused on private religious experience, Paul focuses on a community of regenerated persons who testify to God's work through Christ in the new created order. Remember the false teachers were having these visions of angels and they were trying to impress everyone with their private spiritual lives. But Paul makes it clear to us that the community of the church is the priority. And so when we take a look at what it means to be one of Jesus' people, we recognize that these things are marks of who we are. Uh, some of you are, are football fans. Um, it's, yeah, it's totally not football season, right? Like it's, it's over for now. Yeah. 
I don't know. I have, sorry, <laughs> stepping into some waters that I'm, they're dark. Um, but I know some of you are football fans because you have jerseys. I've seen you wear them. And, and you, you, maybe you're a Seahawks fan and you have a Seahawks jersey and you didn't buy that jersey because you went to the store and you're like, man, it just fits me so well. And I like the blue and the bright green and like the holes or like really the airflow. It's just such a great piece of clothing. No, you bought that jersey because you are a part of the community that roots for that team. Sports jerseys are not private fashion decisions. They are statements of belonging to a community. The person that would just go to the store and buy a sports jersey just because, with no connection to the sports team, maybe somebody would do that ironically, but it's kind of a silly thing, right? You would, you would put on that shirt, you would wear that hat because you are making a representative statement about the people that you belong to. And in the same way, the idea that we would pattern our behavior in Colossians chapter 3 off this list of attributes without considering our membership in the Christian community is silly. We are the body of Christ, and it's our connection to Christ through his church that gives us our ethical purpose. These kinds of things that we put off and put on are the uniform that we wear as representatives of Christ. And this community, this community is interesting because it's both exclusive and it's inclusive. Listen to verses 6 and 7. Because of these, because of these behaviors, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them. See, Paul creates these totally separate categories here. Because of these sinful patterns that we're going to talk about in a few minutes, God's wrath, God's anger, God's judgment is coming on those that Paul calls the disobedient. In verse 9, he says, You have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. For Paul, there are two very different buckets. People are either in or they are out. And this makes us very uncomfortable as modern Americans because we don't like that idea. But it's clearly taught throughout Scripture, especially by Jesus. Listen to these words of Jesus. He says in John, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. There's a difference between Jesus' sheep and and everyone else. In Matthew 7, he says, enter the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. But there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. John 15, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Jesus isn't afraid to let people know that there is a choice to make. Will you be in him or will you not? There is an exclusivity to the people of God. But there's also a radical inclusivity to the people of God. Jesus is making this community out of all kinds of people. Every place that culture puts up barriers, Jesus' church is tearing them down. Racial barriers, cultural barriers, barriers between private religious practice and social class, Anyone and everyone is welcome to the community of Christ. 
And this is radical language in the ancient world. This uh, verse 11, where he says, there's no Jew or Greek or circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but, all, but Christ is all in all. This would have been wild to hear in the first century. I'm gonna give you a couple quotes. This is from a, um, a Greek author who is praying a prayer to the Roman God of fortune. He says, first, that I was born a human being and not one of the brutes. Next, that I was born a man and not a woman. Thirdly, a Greek and not a barbarian. And the Jewish people, they're not much better at this time. Uh, here's a rabbi's prayer. Blessed are you who did not make me Gentile. Blessed are you who did not make me a woman. Blessed are you who did not make me a slave. See, there's this idea in the ancient world that some people are better than other people. And community should be formed around class. These people associate in this kind of community. Those people over there, they go that direction. We don't associate with them. And the idea that a community would be formed that disregards all of these social barriers and allows entrance to people of every kind would have been unheard of. And for many of us today, we think like, man, they were so backwards and terrible in the first century. I'm glad we've gotten past that. But the problem is, in a lot of ways, we haven't. Just a week or so ago, a young man went into a supermarket and killed a bunch of people because of their skin color, because he was afraid that they were going to take over white spaces. And you could say, well, he has mental illness. But Paul might counter and say, maybe we all suffer from mental illness. Because we all walk around in a space where it's easy to just say, I'm better than you, and you're not allowed here. That kind of thing fuels all kinds of ideologies in our country. But Paul says it has no place in the church. We are all one in Christ. So whatever your identity is, when you enter into the people of God, it must be placed underneath your new identity, which is in Christ. David Powell in his commentary again says, without taking the two lists that we'll get to as comprehensive, they do significant sufficiently represent behaviors that betray one's identity as God's redeemed people. When we, we talk about these things that we should put off and put on, we are talking about the jersey that we are wearing, the uniform that is representing us as a people. And as we start talking about killing sin, we are talking about a community project. But the second C word I want to draw your attention to this morning is the word cooperation. Look at verse 10. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. We have all these phrases in this section, uh, put to death, put away, put off the old, put on the new. And Paul is commanding us to do these things. And Paul intends that we would do these things. When we look at these sinful practices in a minute, we are being given the responsibility to live our lives in a certain way. But in verse 10, Paul lets us know that it's ultimately God that is doing the work. We are being renewed. That's, that's a passive word. That's something that's being done to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the interesting thing here is Paul is reflecting here on the first story in the Bible, he says, you are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. Remember, all the way back in Genesis, 
man and woman were created in the image of God and be given new life, but they inherited death because of their pursuit of knowledge outside of the bounds of Yahweh. He said, don't eat from this tree, not because knowledge is a bad thing and God didn't want them to have it, but because God intended to teach them himself the skills they needed to rule and reign on the earth. And they bypassed him and they died. But here, Paul says, you were dead, but you've been given life in Christ. You're being made into the image of your creator fully once again, and that's happening through knowledge, knowledge that God is giving you by the power of, your, of his Holy Spirit. So when we think about ethics, morals, when we think about ways we should behave in the world, how do we handle that tension? Is God doing it in us, or are we being commanded to do it ourselves? And the answer is yes. Philippians 2, Paul says, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Do some stuff. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Ultimately, it is God in you. John Calvin says it this way, As it is an arduous work and of immense labor to put off the corruption which is in us, he bids us to strive and make every effort for this purpose. A.W. Tozer, who was a pastor in the early 20th century, he talks about Christian heroes. Maybe you've read missionary biographies or, or the stories of the saints of the ancient church, and, and you just feel like, man, they've, they've got some kind of life to them that, that I don't seem to have. And he says, I venture to suggest that the one vital quality which they had in common was spiritual receptivity. Something in them was open to heaven, something which urged them Godward. They had spiritual awareness and they went on to cultivate it until it became the biggest thing in their lives. They differed from the average person in that when they felt the inward longing, they did something about it. And as we, as we think about and contemplate this idea of these things they were supposed to put off and these things that were supposed to put on, the power of the Spirit of God in us is propelling us to this kind of lifestyle that looks different from the world, but we still have to do something about it. Here's an illustration. Um, maybe this will be helpful. Imagine, imagine an astronaut on just a long space mission, one of those kind of maybe near-future science fiction shows where there's a planet a long ways away, and it's going to take months and months and months to get there. And so the astronaut is um, on the ship, making his way to his new home. Now he is, they've, they've already figured out it's like an Earth-like planet. He will, uh, he's designed for that home. His body will work in that atmosphere, in that environment. But the problem is the environment that he's in now, the spacecraft, there's no gravity there. And if you are in a zero gravity environment for long enough, it starts to wreck your body. Your muscles start to atrophy and, and they, they break down because you're not, you're not fighting against gravity. You're not resisting with them. The world that he is currently inhabiting is trying to deform him. But every day he's been given what he needs to stay strong. He's been given the, the tools and the equipment 
and uh, other um, personnel on the ship to help him work out his body on his way to his new home. But he still has to get up every day and exercise. Because if he just decides, you know what? I don't care anymore. He's still going to make it to his new home. He's still going to make it to the planet. But he's going to be in pretty rough shape. And when we think about walking in holiness, when we think about these things that we're going to talk about, God's not just giving us arbitrary rules. He's not just like mad at us or doesn't want us to have fun or is like, has like a you know, pinwheel with a bunch of ethical commands on it that he's just like, I don't know, maybe we'll make him do that. He's trying to put us into alignment with the world that he's bringing us to. Is we've been raised in Christ and we have been designed for the kingdom of God. And we're on a journey to the kingdom of God. And he's, by the power of the Holy Spirit, making us into the kind of people that will be ready to live there when we get there one day. So God works in us. He empowers us. He renews us. But he still calls us to cooperate with him in certain kinds of action that are in alignment with the kind of people we are becoming as a community in Christ. So what are those actions? Paul's going to give us two categories. It's not, a, it's not an exhaustive list of what it means to be a Christian, but it's two broad categories of, of life. And the first one is your third C word, chastity. That's an old word. Here's C.S. Lewis talking about it. He says, chastity is the most unpopular of the Christian virtues. There is no getting away from it. The Christian rule is either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. Now, this is so difficult and so contrary to our instincts that obviously either Christianity is wrong on our sexual instinct as it is now or as it is now has gone wrong, one or the other. So Paul thinks that our sexual instinct as people has gone wrong. Look at verse 5. He says, Therefore, because you are new in Christ, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient, and you were once, and you once walked in these things when you were living in them. So what's Paul talking about here? These aren't just a bunch of random sins that he's throwing in a list. He's using these words to describe a sexual ethic that is fueled by the stoicheia. You remember them, the elemental spirits of the world that are at work in the world causing chaos? And he says that this this sexual ethic is out of alignment with what it means to be raised with Christ. The first word he uses is the word porneia, which is translated sexual immorality. Uh, In talking about that word, Scott McKnight says that the term, when the term porneia is used in a general sexual immorality sense, it it refers for the Jew to Leviticus 18. So what he says there is that when Jewish people would have used the word porneia in the first century, it was kind of a junk drawer term for all kinds of sexual sin. But it wasn't just an undefined term because the Jewish people had the law. And in the law, in the Torah, specifically in Leviticus 18, there's a list of all kinds of sexual activity that God forbids. And so McKnight says that when Paul says the word porneia, he's intending his audience to refer back to 
Leviticus 18. And what's interesting about Leviticus 18 is it starts like this. The Lord spoke to Moses, speak to the Israelites and tell them, I am the Lord your God. Do not follow the practices of the land of Egypt where you used to live or follow the practices of the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you. You must not follow their customs. You are to practice my ordinances and you are to keep my statutes by following them. I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and ordinances. If a a person will live if he does them, I am the Lord. So in Leviticus 18, what Yahweh says is the reason I'm going to give you all of these sexual ethics is because I want you to be separate from the culture that you came out of. I don't want you to be like the Egyptians. I don't want you to be like the Canaanites. As as a part of your allegiance to your new king, I want you to live a life that looks different. And this is the same thing that Paul is talking about in Colossians 3. The sex ethic of a Christian is a marker of Christian community. It's part of the jersey that we wear. Now, it's not the only purpose of the Christian sex ethic. Um, We learn in Ephesians that that, uh, the relationship between a a husband and wife is like Christ and the church in some mysterious way. Uh, Marriage is, is a way of cultivating oneness and holiness in a couple, and it produces and protects children. There's a lot of reasons for it. But being different than the world around you has been historically a really important one. The Roman Empire was incredibly loose with its sexual morals. We we often like lament today, like, oh, it's so bad out there in, in 2022. Like, it's really not if you look into the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was crazy. And one of the ways that Christians stood out in their culture was their practice of lifelong, sexually exclusive, opposite-sex marriage as the only appropriate relationship for sexual expression. Uh, in one early epistle uh, to um, an apologist talking about the Christians, he says, they marry like everyone. They bear children, but they do not expose their offspring. They set a common table, but not a common bed. The author here is marveling that when the Christians get together, like I talked about a minute, there's no social class, there's no poor versus rich divide. We all come to the same table and celebrate the life of Christ together as one community, which is weird, but we don't share sexual partners. We don't share a common bed. Christian sexual discipline in the second century was one of the things that drew non-Christian people to the gospel. Minutius Felix, writing about this, says beauty of life, which is uh, how he refers to the ethic of Christians, beauty of life encourages strangers to join the ranks. He said, looking out in his community, men and women would see how Christians behaved in this area of their lives and be drawn to faith in Christ. And the crazy thing is, is we are in a cultural moment where something similar may be on the horizon. There's a recent column in the Washington Post by a woman named Christine Emba. Listen to what she says. In our post-sexual revolution culture, there seems to be wide agreement among young adults that sex is good and the more of it we have, the better. That assumption includes the idea that we don't need to be tied up to a relationship or marriage, that our proclivities are personal and that they are not to be judged by others, not even by participants. In this landscape, there is only one rule, get consent from your partner beforehand. But the outcome is a world in which young people are both liberated and miserable. 
while college scandals and the Me Too moment have, may have cemented a baseline rule for how to get into bed with someone without crossing legal lines, that hasn't made the experience of dating and finding a partner simple or satisfying. Instead, the experience is often sad, unsettling, and even traumatic. She goes on in the article and, and talks about multiple interviews that she has had with young college students, 20-somethings, that are really dissatisfied with the only sex ethic they have, which is consent. And later on in the article, she says, maybe, maybe we should think more deeply about the rules of engagement in sexual relationships. And in the midst of that reality, the Christian community says, hey, we have some ideas. They seem to have worked for a long time. Maybe they're worth considering. Paul continues with his list. He says, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed. These words stress not just the act of sexual promiscuity, but also holding inappropriate sexual thoughts in your mind, dwelling on them, fantasizing about them, and even planning on how to bring them to pass. Now, it's not an issue in Paul's day so much, but the world of pornography today is a huge problem for men and women in and out of the church. Chances are many in this room struggle with an addiction to pornographic content on the internet. And pornography, it, it deforms your soul. It sabotages your marital oneness if you're married. Uh, it just objectifies people in general that you interact with. It makes you a participant in the sexual abuse of people you are watching, and it strips them of dignity as image bearers of God. And it also funds the international sex trade where children are bought and sold for wicked purposes. And so this list of five words, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed are all meant to paint a picture of a sexual ethic for Christians that looks different than the world around us. So why does Paul say that this is sinful? Why is this wrong? He says that this sexual sin is idolatry. It's the worshiping of a false god. Doug Moo says sexual sins arise because people have an uncontrolled desire for more and more experiences and pleasures, and such a desire is nothing less than a form of of idolatry. So when I go out of the bounds that God has set for sexual expression, I am saying, I do not trust you, God, to be my ultimate satisfaction. I must satisfy my own desires because you aren't doing it for me. And you could say the same thing about food or shopping or gambling or whatever thing that you are drawn to that is outside of holiness. But Scripture is consistently focused on sexual ethics. Sometimes Christians get accused of, of, of talking about sex too much. Like, we're so, we're so puritanical and, and focused on, on sex, and why can't we just stop talking about it? Well, the Bible kind of talks about it a lot. Why is that? David Powell says, as sexual desires touch on the deepest cravings of one's soul, their manifestation reflects whether one is able to lead a Christocentric life through faith in God's redemptive act in Christ. So what he's saying is, for many of us, where the rubber meets the road, when it comes to whether or not we're going to trust Jesus, 
plays itself out in our sexuality. Sexuality is core to our being, and when Christ calls us, he asks us for everything. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. So Christian, you belong to God. Not only does sexual sin do something to you on the inside that damages your soul, which is one of the reasons why God says don't do it because he loves you. God also knows that sexual desire is one of the most powerful things that we experience. So then the question when it comes to idolatry is do we really trust Jesus enough to give that desire over to him? So what should we do about sexual sin? I've got three comments. The first thing is we need to recognize that it's in our midst. The church has this tendency to see sexual sin as something that's that's outside its walls. It's in the culture. It's what bad people do out there. But that's not true. Paul is writing to the Colossian church because the tendency to be sexually immoral is a tendency that we all share as human beings. This is our issue. It is inside the church. People outside the church aren't really my problem. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, for what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge that those are inside? He says, like, whatever the world is doing out there, they're just going to do what they do. We're concerned about the lives that we live as Jesus' people. I mentioned a little earlier, but just this week, um, an independent report was, was released on the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the largest Protestant dom- domination in the United States. And they have this long history, just this regrettable, awful history of leaders abusing sexually young women and covering it up for decades. And we would be foolish to think that that kind of thing doesn't live in our hearts too. We need to recognize that this is in our midst. And then secondly, we need to be honest about it. Paul doesn't shy away from it. He calls it out. He might, maybe even he assumes that this is an area of struggle for the Colossians. See, any sin that we are unable to talk about is a sin that remains in the darkness and we will likely never see freedom from it. And for some of us, that seems really difficult. There are, maybe there's sexual sin in your past or sexual sin in your this weekend, and you feel guilt and shame, and you feel like, man, I, I shouldn't even come to church today. But that's, that's a lie of the enemy. Listen to John Christostom talk about repentance. He says, be ashamed when you sin. Don't be ashamed when you repent. Sin is the wound. Repentance is the medicine. Sin is followed by shame. Repentance is followed by boldness. Satan has overturned this order and given boldness to sin and shame to repentance. See, one of the lies of the evil one is if you have done something wrong, you need to hide it and don't let anybody know. The reality is, is you need to Bring it before people that you can trust and confess it in before God and before others and repent of it, and you will receive freedom from it in that. 
be honest about sexual sin. And then the third thing is put it to death. For Paul, this is a big deal. We can't, we can't minimize this part of our ethics because it goes down to the core of who we are. We need to take it seriously. If you struggle with sexual sin, confess it to someone you trust. If it's pornography, get accountability software. Throw away your computer if you need to. Whatever it takes to be free of it, get free of it. Put it to death. As Paul says, part of our expression of God's power in us as a Christian community is our radically distinct sexual ethic. But it's not the only trait that should mark us as Jesus' people. And that brings us to our last C this morning, which is charity. And again, I'm using an old word. Charity is a word that that now just means giving money away, but it used to mean love. Look at what Paul says in verses 8 and 9. But now put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old self with its practices. So what's the second thing Paul says should mark the Christian community? It's love. Jesus says in John 13, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. This list of five, these are all speaking sins. These are sins that we commit with our mouths. Paul says that these sorts of things shouldn't be a part of who we are as a people. And they're often, they're often outbursts of emotion. Just like sexual sin, they come from a lack of self-control. And they can be disastrous to the community. I mean, raise your hand if you've ever said something in anger that has harmed a relationship. Yeah, everyone, <laughs> right? Have you ever done the thing where you, you lie without even thinking about it? And later you've been like, man, I, that wasn't true. Why did I say that? Because it just comes out of you, right? Jesus says in Luke 6, a good person produces good out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil produ- person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart for his mouth speaks from the overflow of his heart. The grace of God in this, when, when I... I'm surprised by the wickedness that comes out of my mouth. The grace of God is that it's it's him showing me what's down there, right? Like I I would never know that that dark part of me still existed if it didn't come out in my speech. And God in his goodness goes, yeah, see that thing? You still got to work on that thing. You didn't even know it was there. And now you do. Why are these kind of sins a big deal? I mean, and and this is one of those things too where where in the church we would say like, oh, the sexual sin, that's a big deal. This whole like anger and lying and stuff, that's not a big deal. Those are just like culturally respectable sins that everybody does to get along and we don't have to worry about that. No, Paul says these are equally a problem for us and we should put them away, put them to death as Christians. Why? Because our speech is an indicator of our allegiance to Christ. Listen to James chapter three. He says, With the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in God's likeness. Blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way. It says our our allegiance, our worship, our blessing to God 
comes out of our mouth, and yet we turn that mouth into a weapon to hurt people. Paul says in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart resulting in righteousness and one confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. This, the speech that we have is the speech that actually brings us into the family of God. It's by grace, it's by faith, but the action that we take to bring us into God's people is through our mouths. And then we get into the community of faith and then we tear people down with anger and slander. And it shouldn't be so. Anger is deceptive. It's one of those things that we think we can, we can wield. It's one of those alligators that we think we can ride. Frederick Buchner says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is probably the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. This is why this is such a big deal. Once we let anger out, it shows us what's going on inside of us and it's rotten. But additionally, anger just doesn't work. This is a famous quote by Dallas Willard. He says, there's nothing that can be done with anger that cannot be done better without it. Have you found that to be true? You get angry with your kids and you yell at them. Nobody ever does that. It's, never mind. We're in church. Um, how did that go? Did that, did, that, did that motivate them the way you wanted them motivated? Have they, have they learned more about the, about the heart of God in your anger? No. Anger doesn't do what we think it's going to do. So what should we do about sins of anger? The first thing we should do is we should own them. These are deep-rooted problems in our hearts, and, and we don't even see them until they burst out. And so, so when, they, when they do, don't just immediately go like, wow, I have no idea where that came from. That's not like me. No, it, it is like you. It's like the real you, and, and you do a really good job all day long keeping the real you pushed down so that no one can see it. And in a moment of emotional weakness, it overflows. And again, that's the grace of God saying, hey, that's what's really down there. Don't allow yourself to write anger off as no big deal. And then secondly, reflect on your own heart. So I have one suggestion, um, and I, I've, I've got two different Christian thinkers that make it that I want to share with you and, and a book recommendation. Uh, Brant Hansen wrote the book Unoffendable, and if you, have, if you struggle with anger, I would re recommend that you read it several times. But he says, if you're constantly being hurt, offended, or angered, you should honestly evaluate your inflamed ego. See, the reality is like, if you are so important that everyone is stepping on you and making you mad, and how dare they? then maybe your sense of importance is a little out of alignment. Hansen wrote that in 2015. 
Jeremy Taylor wrote this in 1650. Humility is the most excellent natural cure for anger in the world. For he that by daily considering his own infirmities and failings makes the error of his neighbor or servant to be his own case and remembers that he daily needs God's pardon and his brother's charity will not be apt to rage at the levities or misfortunes or indiscretions of another. What Taylor says is is that when you recognize that everybody else is going through it just like you are, when you humble yourself, put yourself on the same plane as everyone else, you won't be as easily offended. And I love how he says, you won't be apt to rage at the levities or misfortunes or indiscretions of another. How many of you get angry when other people are having fun? Or when they just make simple mistakes? Man, I can't believe that he's so stupid. Or when they make just poor choices and, and things don't go well for them, you respond in anger. Taylor says, put yourself in someone else's shoes and walk in humility and do it over and over and over again. So Paul says these two categories of sin, sexual sin and anger, these are both community problems, and they're both markers of what make us different from the world around us. We will be known by the love that we have for one another, and and in the culture today, we will be known by our very different understanding of how to express our sexuality. And these kinds of sins have no place in us now that we have been brought into Christ. Paul says we should put them away. They are part of our old team's jersey, and we have to remove that in order to put on the new team's jersey. You don't don't wear a Seahawks uniform with a Broncos patch on the shoulder. It causes problems. Paul says these things need to be removed. So, Paul is calling the Colossians and us as the community of God's people in Christ's power together as brothers and sisters to walk in a countercultural sexual ethic and a countercultural practice of love for one another. Sexual and divisive speech sins may have marked us prior to becoming Christians. But through the power of the Holy Spirit in us, they can and should be removed from our lives. And this is going to be a work that we engage in for our whole lives. For most of us, the struggle for sexual purity, the struggle for peace and self-control are constant. And we need to trust that when we let God's Spirit lead us and we step out into the things that we know to be true, that God will slowly over time shape us into the image of Christ.
You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.